Well, most of you are no doubt familiar with the story of William Cowper. I am going to say Cowper. If you're one of those people that think it's Cooper, you can think Cooper. But you know the story of William Cowper, the famous 18th century poet and hymn writer who was converted in an insane asylum. Cowper spent the better part of his life battling depression and what the old writers used to call melancholy, uh, though there might have been a bit of insanity mixed in. And yet he is one of the most beloved and remembered poet and Christian poet and hymn writers of his century and even in all of Christendom. And Cowper, as he was weighed down under the distress of the depression that he was constantly beleaguered by, made his way to the famous English preacher John Newton so that he could get spiritual care and the help that he needed. And it was under that care that Newton began to write the what have been called the Alney hymns. The Alney hymns are those hymns that include the beloved Amazing Grace, God moves in a mysterious way, and glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion City of our God. Three of the greatest hymns in all of church history were written by John Newton and cataloged with the Alney hymns. And what you may not know is that Newton wrote those hymns in order to help Cowper, who was struggling with depression. There is a there's a story, and, and I'm not sure how embellished it is, but Cowper had, under uh, the duress of, of what he was experiencing internally and not knowing why he was being afflicted one night, um, tried to take his life. It was the fourth time he tried to take his life, and he had gotten into a public carriage, and uh, as the story goes, the, the man driving the carriage couldn't see through the fog. And... Um, Cowper wanted him to take him to the place where he was going to take his life, and instead, the carriage, not knowing where it should go, the driver took him right back to his house. And that is the background of the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You'll know those words. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Now, I tell you the story of William Cowper because here in Genesis 42, you have God's mysterious providence. You have the cloudy, mysterious providence of God. You have the hidden face of God, the hidden smile of God. You have, you have the clouds that Jacob so much dreaded. You have the clouds that Jacob's son, son so much dread. You have God dealing in a mysterious way with both Jacob and the sons of Jacob. And we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to consider just those two things. First, God's mysterious providence toward Jacob. And then secondly, we're going to consider God's mysterious providence to the sons of Jacob. Well, Jacob has been dealt with severely. Jacob, remember, has uh, lingered long. He has had a very difficult life. Remember, he spent 14 years uh, trying to gain Rachel, the beloved wife who then dies, giving birth to the son Benjamin, and then having his son sell Joseph off into slavery to the Ishmaelites, though they came back with the story that he fell prey to, to a wild animal, and, and everything has been hard for Jacob. Jacob, remember, was the great deceiver when you first meet him. He is the one who is swindling his brother, and the rest of his life, God is dealing with Jacob. 
God is dealing with Jacob in very severe ways. And here, as it were, it seems to be coming to the climax. God seems to be dealing with Jacob and chastening Jacob for his earlier sins. Jacob, remember, even after all the hardship, even after being deceived by Laban, even after God dealing with Jacob severely throughout the years and and taking the better part of his life from him in, in dealing with him severely, Jacob makes the mistake of showing favoritism to Joseph. And now that's coming home to roost. And it is God dealing with Jacob because of his earlier sins. It's God dealing with him now in very severe ways. Now God has sent the famine. And what's interesting, and we might miss this if we're not reading the scriptures carefully, God has sent the famine. And I think it's right to say this, while there may have been 10,000 other reasons why God sent the famine on Egypt and on the nations around. God sent the famine because God was dealing with the covenant family, with the old covenant church, the family of Jacob. And the famine was severe, and there was no food. And so Jacob, realizing this, sends 10 of his sons down into Egypt to get food and to bring it home so that they can live. Notice he says to them in verse 2, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Jacob realizes that something has to be done. The family has to be provided for. He sends 10 of his sons, but he keeps back Benjamin. Now, um, that shows, I think, that his heart has not been cured of the favoritism. This is the youngest son of his favorite wife, and his heart has not yet been cured. He would... He would give up the other ten sons, but not Benjamin. Benjamin reminded him of his beloved wife. Benjamin reminded him of Joseph. And, and in that, that way in which he unjustly treasured Rachel and, and Joseph and now Benjamin, it is manifesting himself in, in him keeping him back. And as they go and, and God deals with the brothers, which we'll see shortly, you'll see that when they come back and They're told that Simeon has been held back. Simeon has been taken prison, and now this ruler in Egypt is telling them that they have been uh, they have been called spies. And unless unless they come back with the youngest brother, then then Simeon would be taken away. And and Jacob feels in all this. He feels God dealing with him heavily, and yet he never mentions God. He he makes no mention of God. Isn't that interesting? All the lessons, and I think this is a very important point for us, all the lessons that Jacob had learned. Jacob had wrestled with God at Bethel. He had seen God face to face, so to speak. He had had God's blessings pronounced on him. He had been delivered by God, even as God dealt with him. God was delivering him and blessing him and keeping him and protecting him and saying, all the nations are going to be blessed in you. God was for Jacob, and yet in all of that, As many times as God taught Jacob that he was for him, Jacob forgot. And I think that's an important lesson. No matter how much we get into our minds the truth of Scripture, and no matter how many times God deals with us in a way to help us to see that he is for us, we so often forget. We allow our circumstances to cloud everything, and, and we, we, we think by what we see. Jacob is thinking by what he sees. That is, one of the greatest, that is one of the greatest obstacles to each and every one of us, that we think by what we see. 
we measure by our circumstances. We look around, and if things aren't going well, if things are hard, if things are, are not going well in our homes, in, in our workplaces, in, in our employment, in whatever, we think, God is not for me. And notice, notice when the brothers come back, notice how Jacob puts this in verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Jacob essentially says, everything's against me. Everything is working against me. Now, little, little does Jacob know what God is doing. Um, it's one of those... Ironies, isn't it? We're obsessed with movies about the future and finding out what happens in the future. What happens? What will happen to me? If I, if I could only know what's going to happen, what would happen in five years, in ten years? What will happen to my children? What will things be like? And, and God doesn't allow us that luxury because God wants us to trust him with the dark providences. He wants us to trust him. You know, one of the things about Cowper that's always been interesting to me is, and, and you don't know, we don't know much about Cowper. Why did he experience the things he did? Why, why did he have this besetting um, spiritual darkness throughout the entirety of his life? Why, why didn't God ever take that away? Well, one of the reasons is so that you get to sing Amazing Grace. One of the reasons is so that we get to take comfort from God moves in a mysterious way. One of the reasons is we... We exalt God when we sing glorious things of thee are spoken. The good that came out of that, what God was doing. This is, this is really, and I, I, wonder, I wonder if the Apostle Paul is not reflecting especially on these portions of Genesis when he writes those words in Romans 8, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Here Jacob says, everything's against me. Everything's turned out wrong. This is not how I wanted my life to turn out. My favorite son is gone. Now another one of my sons is gone. Now the prospect of losing yet another son is being held out in front of me. All these things are against me. And you get the sense that uh, Jacob doesn't trust the ten sons. You wonder what's been going through his life. 22 years. That's how long time has passed since Joseph was sold into slavery. 22 years God has been dealing with Jacob silently. God has been dealing with Jacob, this mysterious cloud. And, and when you read this chapter, you get the sense that Jacob doesn't trust the ten sons. Sure, they had come home and they had told him a wild beast has eaten Joseph, but you get the sense by what he says to them in this chapter that he doesn't really believe that. You know, he knows what kind of men his sons are. One writer, Derek Kidner, so helpfully puts this, by their father's eye... The son's crime might be covered up, but not their character. And so, so Joseph's looking at everything. He's looking at his ten sons, thinking they're scoundrels, not trusting them, not believing them. When they come back and they say to him, he said to us, you know, you're spies. And we said, no, we're honest men. You wonder what's racing through Jacob's mind. Honest men. He knew what his sons were like. He didn't trust that they would protect their younger brother. He, he probably is thinking they might do to him what I'm wondering if they did to Joseph. But, but what we see in this chapter is that Jacob is looking at everything in his life and nothing looks good. Everything looks like a frowning providence. Turmoil in his home, dysfunction in the family, the loss of his children, the loss of his wife. 
Everything looks like it's against Jacob. And yet God is purposefully dealing graciously with Jacob. Jacob is going to see Joseph again. This is the only way that can happen. Jacob is going to be brought into Israel, into Egypt, so that God can deliver his people and redeem them and give us the greatest type of the gospel in the history of redemption. And this is the only way it can happen. God is working his purposes out so that the Apostle Paul could say in that eighth chapter of Romans, all things are working together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You know, I tend to think we don't really believe that because it's easy to say, I believe Romans 8.28 when things are going well. Now, usually when we talk about Romans 8.28 is when things are going well. But when Romans 8.28 really works in helping us see through the dark cloud of God's mysterious providences in our lives is when everything's going poorly. That's when it works. When, when you're on your deathbed, Romans 8.28 works. When, when all the memories of the sin and the failure and, and all of the regrets come racing through your mind, at that moment, Romans 8.28 works. That's what Genesis 42 is telling us about Jacob. Instead of, instead of living by what he sees, he needs to learn to see through the dark cloud and to see all of God's purposes all of God's delight, all of God's pleasure. God loved Jacob. Isn't that marvelous? The scripture says that. God says, Jacob, I have loved. It doesn't look like God loves him. It doesn't look, judging by his circumstances, if you held Jacob out today, if you found someone that looked like Jacob and you said, this is the one that God loves, we would say no. And no amount of intellectual knowledge helps us see clearly what we can see by the eyes of faith as we lay hold of what God's word says, and we understand if God is for us, who can be against us? The psalmist says, even if the mountains should melt into the ocean, even if the, the earth unhinges, the God of Israel is for us. You know, I often think that Jacob is one of those men, he knows better. He'll tell us that in, in Genesis 48. He'll, he'll actually say, when he's pronouncing his dying blessings, he, he, he knows. He knows the substance of Romans 8.28. And he'll say to his sons, all these years, the God of Israel has shepherded me. He gets it. He knows God's shepherding him through this. And yet, at that moment, he forgets. Um, I think about hearing these things when I was younger and they, they don't really mean anything to you until the hard times start coming. That's when they matter. God is dealing graciously with Jacob because God loves Jacob. And even though it is painful, God is opening. And these are the words of, of Newton in that great hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. He says, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. God's minds are deep with the riches of his sovereign will. 
that he dispenses in our lives. And that means, and I want us to really take this away this morning, that means we have to learn to trust him when the clouds are dark. It means when the clouds are dark, and if you are a Christian, the clouds will be dark. They will be dark at times as chastening for sin. They will be dark at times just because God is going to do something in your life and through you for his own glory. And yet we've got to be able to trust him. And when we think we see a frowning providence, we've got to learn to trust him. But secondly, we see that Jacob is not the only one being dealt with. God is also dealing with the sons of Jacob. The sons of Jacob uh, were scoundrels. The sons of Jacob have done nothing good. The, the sons of Jacob conspired together against Joseph. The sons of Jacob did the most heinous thing you could do to your flesh and your blood. They, they would fall under the indictment of John in 1 John. They, they hated their brother. They envied their brother. They wanted their brother gone. They came up with a plan. They devised a plan to kill him. They changed their plan. They sold him into slavery. They got rid of their brother. They removed the one that plagued their thinking. And, and then you see what happens to these brothers. You see the turmoil over the years. You see Judah's great sin. You see Simeon and Levi's sin. You see the sin of the son's of Jacob so prominently, and yet now the day of reckoning has come, and God is dealing with the sons of Jacob. And what's so important and so interesting about this chapter is that we see in it in a way we almost don't see anywhere else how God mysteriously deals with his people in order to bring them to repentance and to reconcile them to himself and the perfect wisdom that he uses in doing that. You see God's perfect wisdom. Here, the brothers, the first thing they're told, they have to be dealt with. They have to come to terms with the fact that they've sinned 22 years, and, they, and they, they've never confessed what they did to Joseph. 22 years. Think of that. That's, we would harbor our sin for the rest of our lives. We would cover our sins for the rest of our lives if God didn't deal with us. 22 years. They've been living with their consciences, knowing what they did to Joseph, and yet unrepentant. And notice, now as God begins to deal with them, the first thing we're told is that Jacob tells them, go down to Egypt. Now, I think it's interesting, Egypt would have been one of those trigger words that I wouldn't have wanted to hear if I was one of the sons of Jacob, because that would have reminded me of Joseph. Remember, the Ishmaelites were traveling to Egypt, and they sold him off into slavery. They knew his passage would have been to Egypt. They knew their brother would have spent some considerable time in Egypt. And here God is having Jacob and is using even that command to go and get food to save their lives to begin his heart work in the sons of Jacob. He says, go down to Egypt, that plaguing word, that plaguing place. And notice as the brothers go and they come that that lo and behold, of all the people from the face of the earth, and there would have been lots and lots of people coming to Egypt for grain, Joseph sees his brothers. Now, you wonder, don't you? You wonder how, how would Joseph have just coincidentally run into his brothers? It almost makes you wonder if Joseph isn't waiting for his brothers. He knows the famine is severe. He knows the famine's in Canaan. He knows he is the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. He is in the know. And, and you get the sense that 
Joseph is eagerly anticipating them and looking out for them. And when they finally come to him and he begins his interactions with them, at which, at, by the way, at first sight, looks uh, dangerously similar to revenge, which it's not. So just go ahead and remove that if you're thinking that. Looks like this is Joseph's chance to get back at his brothers, which is not what he's doing. We're actually told in this chapter that everything Joseph does, notice verse 9, verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. That is super significant. Joseph is still living off of the revelation of God. He, he is remembering what God said that one day his brothers would bow down to him, and now they are. They're bowing to him. And, and he remembers that, and so everything he does consequent to that is him dealing with his brothers in accord with God's word and revelation. He is not out to get them. He realizes that God is doing something. He realizes that God is bringing to fruition what he had done 22 years prior to this. Joseph sees God's, he's the only one that sees God's hand of providence. It's remarkable. He's the only one in this chapter that actually sees that God is doing something. And so how he deals with the brothers is is fascinating. I had never seen this before. I don't know if you've ever put this together, but he is dealing with them strategically. First, he says to them, you are spies. Now, if you remember back in the earlier chapters of Genesis, that's what his brothers had said to him when he came down from his father to see them. When they sold him into slavery, they said, are you coming down to spy on us? So don't miss this. God is dealing with the sons of Jacob in accord with their sins by using Joseph to mete it out commensurate with what they had done to him. Uh, this, is a, this is a prime example of of what the Lord Jesus says when he says, uh, with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's a frightening verse. I'll tell you, the older I get, and the more of my sin I see, the more frightening that is. You know, we don't believe in karma. I hope you don't. That's Eastern paganism. It's not Christian. But we do believe whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. That's biblical. And with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, God often does that in the lives of his people, especially, and and we don't want to miss this, not to harm his people, but but to bring his people to himself, to bring his people to repentance. Remember, God did that with David so perfectly. David had taken Bathsheba and, and, and lived unrepentant for well over a year until that child was born. And And when God finally said, enough, I will deal with my servant, I will bring my servant to repentance, he sent Nathan to him. Nathan told him that 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 little parable about the man that had the one little lamb. And and what, what shepherd wouldn't be moved by a story about a little lamb? David had been a shepherd. And and how that one little lamb was taken from him. And and God, even in the use of that parable, dealt with David commensurate with his sin. And then he goes on to deal with David by punishing him and chastening him exactly in the degree and to the extent to which he sinned. When David numbered the people, God sent a plague and cut the people back. 
When David kills Uriah, God says the sword will never depart from your house. When David takes Bathsheba to himself, God kills the child, the fruit of their union. And so here, God is dealing with the sons of Jacob, and he's dealing with them perfectly. And, and notice that, that we're, we're told that Joseph spoke to them harshly. Now, that doesn't seem like the character of Joseph. Remember, Joseph has learned over 22 years, he has become the man God wanted him to be. That, that is not in the character of Joseph to speak that way to his brethren, and yet they had spoken harshly to him. Notice that when, when they finally start to talk to each other about what's going on, notice, notice in verse 22, Reuben said, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. They were harsh to, to Joseph. They had said to Joseph, you've come here to spy us out and tell our father what's going on. Now Joseph deals with them and says, he deals with them harshly. He says, you're spies. They say, no. They say, we're honest men. You wonder, I do wonder, how did... Joseph not break out laughing at the moment when his brothers had the audacity to say, we are honest men. And then he says, I fear God, and you wonder how they don't break out laughing, wondering how this pagan ruler can say he fears the God of Israel. Um, and yet, as, as Joseph continues to deal with them as God is dealing with them, notice the next thing they tell him that they have 12 brothers in all, in verse 13, and that the youngest is home with the father and one is not, no longer alive. Uh, Joseph then says, bring the youngest brother to me, but I'm taking prisoner for myself, one of you, and he takes Simeon. It's very interesting. He could have taken nine and sent one back. Why does he only take one? Well, again... God is dealing with them according to their sins. They had taken him away. They had sold him off. And so he would, he would have them realize what they had done by taking one of theirs. And, and this wasn't a comfortable taking. Don't think of Simeon as being in the palace in luxury. He was in prison. He was in prison just like Joseph was imprisoned. And then, and this is the most fascinating of all the details, Joseph gives them their money back. Now, what's the point of that? The point is they had sold him off for money. They had sold him off for money, just like Judas sold Jesus off for money. And what Joseph was doing, what God was doing to the sons of Jacob was reminding them of their guilt. He was reminding them of their sin. He was, and, and he, this is the most amazing thing, because we love, and, and I've heard Christians say this over the years, don't, I don't like the harsh, th- I don't want harsh, I don't want to hear harsh things, I don't want to hear warnings, I don't want to hear threatenings, I don't want to hear anything, just give me promises, you know. I have heard people misuse this verse my entire Christian life. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, and it is. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And you know what part of that goodness is? Is when he chastens us for our sin. That's part of the goodness of the Lord. God is actually dealing with the sons of Jacob with with grace and with goodness. William Still, reflecting on this, has this great statement. He says, there's no such thing as cheap grace. Grace is the costliest thing in the whole world. 
because it cost the Son of God his lifeblood. And if it cost the Son of God his death to redeem us, what measures might God use in dealing with us in order to drive us to Jesus? At the end of the day, what God is doing, he is manifesting his grace through the dark providences of what's happening to the sons of Jacob. Dark providence. Everything looks, if you're the sons of Jacob right now, you're like, our world is falling apart and God is destroying us. If you're, if you're thinking, if you're the sons of Jacob, you're like, this is it. 22 years, you know, they start to, you know what we did, didn't I tell you? He's Reuben starts, didn't, what did I tell you? It's like, you were part of it, Reuben. And now, now their, their world is falling apart. And they're, notice they're finally awakened for the first time in their life. They're awake spiritually. Notice what they say at the end of verse 28. They see the money. They tremble. They turn to each other. They say, what is this thing that God has done to us? They finally realize God is dealing with them. Their consciences and what they know about God are connecting for the first time in their lives. One writer has put this so well. He says, essentially, when by acts of God's providence, he convicts men of the guilt of their sin, they who are becoming objects of his grace suddenly become, don't miss this, God-conscious When God begins to convict men and women of their sin, and by the way, it's a good thing when we start to feel the guilt of our sin. Um, That's one of the greatest kindnesses from God. It's, it's, It's altogether possible for you to feel guilty about your sin and never to go to Jesus Christ. It's altogether possible. It happens to people all the time. More sorry that Things aren't going well for them than their relationship with the Lord. But when God awakens us and we realize the severity of our sin and we realize that our sin is against the Lord, just like David did in his great prayer of repentance, you know this, David says, against you and you only I have sinned. No, he hadn't. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against their homes. He had sinned against his home. He had sinned against all of Israel. And yet when God awakens him, he says, against you and you only I have sinned. The sons of Jacob are becoming God-conscious for the first time in their lives. And that means God is starting to blow away the cloud cover of the dark providences and help them see what's happening. There is a word here for us, an important word. when we start to realize all the things we've done wrong, and there's so many things we've done wrong. Psalm 40, David says, My iniquities are more than the hairs of my head in multitude. If I could count them, they're innumerable. Um, When God begins to deal with us and bring those things to mind, we need to realize that he is seeking to make us God-conscious and Christ-conscious so that we would see that he's doing that in order to bring us to a place that we go to him and confess those sins. And we go to the one who dealt with those sins. That's the beautiful thing. The same God who is meeting out this difficult circumstance in the life of the sons of Joseph is the same God who says, now I'm going to send my own son into the world. 
and I'm going to take all the guilt of all the sin on myself. You know, I think God saves the sons of Jacob. I think this is how he's saving them. Um, John Bunyan, I think he may go a bit too far at times, but when he speaks of the wicked gate in um, Pilgrim's Progress and, and that it's necessary for one to come to Christ by going through the wicked gate, that is, realizing their own evil and ungodliness and the guilt of their sins and being, in a sense, crushed by it, I think there's something to that. I think that Bunyan is reflecting on things like what we see in this chapter, that those are good things um, if they lead us to Christ, if they lead us to the foot of the cross. Um, You know, where... I'll leave you with this thought this morning. Um, If you're in Christ, you know these things in your experience. Um, Where do I go to get rid of the guilt that weighs down my conscience, that convicts me. We have to go somewhere. We have to do something with it. And God says, bring it to my son. He's taken it on himself. I've put it on him. I've wounded him. I've bruised him. I've crushed him. I've poured my wrath out on him. He's taken it to the fool. The son of Jacob took the wrath. And now he deals with us, oftentimes with dark providences, and yet working out his perfect will. And I want to say this this morning. Who, who like Jesus, ex- who experienced this more than Jesus? Think about this. If you look at Jesus' life, ending on a cursed cross, the only thing you can say is, God is against him. Remember what, remember what they, they said to Jesus. If God's for him, let him save him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. And Jesus went through the darkest of God's providences. And inevitably that great statement at the end of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, applies most perfectly to Jesus Christ. And that's the place where God deals perfectly in his perfect wisdom in the darkest of providences to bring the unfathomable riches out of the deep minds of his grace. I want to say this this morning. If you have never come to Jesus Christ, if you've never come to terms with um, the guilt of your sin, if you've never confessed your sin, if you've never acknowledged your sin, if you've never, if you've never become God-conscious, um, that happens by seeing Christ crucified. When you see Christ crucified, God awakens in us God-consciousness. He helps us to see through the clouds, and he gives us all of his immeasurable grace. That's how that happens. We go to Jesus, and he deals with us. And you know, just, just like the sons of Jacob didn't know they were being dealt with, oftentimes we don't realize who it is dealing with us, that it's Christ. It's the Christ to atone for us. What, what a glorious thought. Joseph is the best person to be distributing these things out to his brothers. Jesus is the best person to be bringing the mysterious dark providences into our life. Because behind the veil is nothing but good and eternal joy and glory. And he is saying, I am bringing you to glory. All the sin, all the hardship. Um, I want to say to you, if you are a Christian, um, I have a friend who often says this, this is grown-up Christianity. 
Um, this is not children playing church Christianity. This is real Christianity. This is, this is what our souls need. Because when we begin to dredge up those thoughts of our sin and what our sin deserves, and, and we, we know, we know what we are. And you know, the Bible says everything's going to be brought to light, everything. Especially, Paul says, the hidden things. It's all going to be laid bare. And every one of us will live crushed under that reality, except that we have the Lord Jesus mediating between us and the righteous judgment of God. And he has said, I've taken the wrath. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Even when I deal with you, that is a mark that I love you, I will never leave you, and all things are working together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his providence. You know, I hope that you'll take this away with you. I know it's not the most comforting sermon, but I hope that it will prove to be a comfort to you when, when the trials come and the chastening comes and the difficulties come, that you'll remember that while God moves in a mysterious way, he is working out his sovereign purposes for his glory, for your good, for us to know more about him. What a God we have. What a, what a kindness when he makes us God conscious. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are weighty truths and yet truths that we need. And Lord, we acknowledge um, how sinful we are. We acknowledge to you this morning how, how we have often needed to be dealt with by your fatherly hand, though it has often been heavy upon us. And Lord, we also acknowledge this morning that there are many times when there are difficult circumstances in our lives, and it, we, we tend to um, draw the conclusion that you are against us, and yet we, we are grateful, Lord, that you are for us. Even behind the dark providences, there's a smiling face. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to know these truths and to experience these truths. We pray that you would help us to see your smile most gloriously in the crucifixion and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one that is measuring out all things and that you are full of love and mercy and tenderness and good purposes towards your people. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our trust of you and our love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.